Okay, we are in Matthew 24. <clears throat> Matthew 24, and we'll read verses 1 to 28. We started this last week, actually two weeks ago, uh, with an introduction, and then last week we started actually uh, the exposition of the passage. And last week we made it through verse 8. So we'll pick up in our exposition in verse 9 tonight, and our goal will be th- to verse 28. So Matthew 24 beginning in verse 1. It says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name." At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance... So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out to them, or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do pray that as we study tonight that you would again give to us clarity and understanding, Lord, knowledge into your will. Lord, help us to see and to remember that it is through many tribulations that we are called to enter into the kingdom of God. And yet, Lord, as well, that you will never abandon your people, but, Lord, you are faithful to deliver us from every evil, Lord, and to safely bring your children into your heavenly kingdom. So we pray, Lord, that you would give to us strength and endurance, Lord, perseverance, but also that we would have great trust in you, Lord, knowing that you can never fail, that you always uh, accomplish your will, and that you do all things well. So, Lord, teach us tonight from your word, and, Lord, we pray that you increase our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're in this passage uh, where Jesus is teaching concerning both the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, the second coming. And we mentioned last week that really the key verse, I think, in understanding Matthew 24, because it is a chapter that is... Uh, open and has been the source of dispute and of various interpretations depending upon how one views the end times. But I do think that verse 3 is the most important verse in the chapter in terms of understanding exactly what Jesus is talking about. Is he talking about events that took place in the immediate future, meaning in that time when uh, his disciples lived? Or is he talking about events that are still in the future, things that are going to happen uh, and that still have not happened yet? And I think the best way to take the chapter is that part of the chapter is dealing with events that took place in the immediate future and the generation there of the disciples. And then part of the events are still future, things that relate to the second coming of Christ. And that is because of verse 3. 
when Jesus announces to the disciples that the temple, the building that they are admiring, the stones that they see there and the beautiful uh, buildings of the temple, and he tells them that all of these things are going to be destroyed, they come to him and ask him, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? There, the three things that are brought forward are when will these things happen, meaning when will the buildings of the temple be destroyed, and when will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, the second coming of Christ, which will be the end of this present age. And in the mind of the disciples, these events are happening simultaneously. The destruction of the temple, the second coming of Christ, and the end of the age, they are assuming that these things are all happening at the same time, and yet what Jesus is teaching them is that there is a period of time in between the first and second coming of Christ. That the destruction of, the Jerus of Jerusalem will take place in close proximity to his own death and resurrection and the events and the generation of the disciples. But then his second coming will happen in a future time, right? A greater period of time will pass when that second coming will be. And so he's dealing with these two separate issues. Then in uh, chapter 4 through 28, he is dealing with the events uh, surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And then in verse 29 through the end of the chapter, he's dealing with events related to the second coming. And I think that's the best way to look at the chapter. And to me, it makes, it makes the most sense. Okay. So we began last week then in verses 4 to 8, and we'll pick up in verse 9 uh, this week. And here, the, the point that Jesus, and, and really all the chapter, the point of this is to prepare His people for the various trials and tribulations that they must face and to give them hope and confidence that God will deliver them from all of their trials and tribulations, that Christ will return and He will not abandon His people. So it has that purpose in mind. So let's pick up in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away, and will betray one another, and hate one another. Here, this is after he has already told them that these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. That is, wars, rumors of wars, uh, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. There's going to be these cataclysmic events that are happening in the world that are increasing in the world and they're going to see those things and he's telling them those are only the beginning of the birth pangs, right? Just as the woman going into labor has the early birth pangs, but the time of her delivery of the coming of the child is not yet here, right? There's still more to come, a greater intensifying of these birth pangs until the baby comes. And so it will be with the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple and all those things. These things will happen and they are the beginning. However, there are, is still a period of time. And then this is what's going to happen to you during that period of time. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. There, from Pentecost to the destruction of Jerusalem, the church will face severe persecution. They will face great tribulation during that time. And we know that this is exactly what happened, right? What happened in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, that the church, the early Christians were being ravaged uh, very quickly after the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. So there, a great persecution arises against the church from Jerusalem and in these other regions. And Paul or Saul is ravaging the church. He's going in to houses, dragging off men and women, throwing them into prison, and then they're even being delivered over to death. And this is what they are going to face during this time. So he's preparing them 
for the tribulation that will come. And this goes back into chapter 23. In chapter 23, when Jesus told them, the Jews, to fill up the measure of the guilt of their fathers, He says to them in verse 34, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is sending to them prophets and wise men and scribes. These are the apostles. These are the early Christians. He's sending them to them. They began there in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. He sent them to them. And what will the Jews do to the apostles? The exact same thing they did to the prophets and the exact same thing that they did to Jesus until they fill up the measure of their father's sins. Right? This is as we mentioned when uh, the Lord told Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land and then he would bring them into the land of Canaan because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. In that way, the iniquity of the Jews was not yet complete. It was almost complete with the crucifixion of Christ, yet there is still more sin for them to fill up and the other sin that they need to fill up is the persecution of the apostles and also there of the early Christians. And that we read in Acts chapter 8. Stephen, a righteous man, was there put to death by the, by the Jews. And then they're ravaging the church, entering house to house, and throwing them into prison. And a great persecution has risen up against them. Then in verse 10, he says, At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. The result of this great persecution is that many people who profess faith in Christ, many people who made some temporary profession, this is like the seed sown there among the rocky soil. When persecution arises on account of the word, what happens to that seed? It falls away. It does not produce good fruit. Well, in this way, when this tribulation arises, this great persecution, many of those who profess faith in Christ their faith will be tested and it will be found wanting. They will fall away at that time and then they will betray one another and hate one another. Those who betray Christ, those who fall away, who forsake the faith, who go back to this rotten, corrupt form of Judaism, then what are they going to do to their former brothers in Christ? They're snitches, right? They're going to betray them and tell them this is where they're meeting. This is where they have their secret meetings. I know in this house there are these Christians there, and that's how they're able to find the inner workings of the church and where they're meeting at and doing these things. They're going to do this to one another, those who are false professors. Then verse 11, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here, false prophets will arise and they will mislead many during this time. There will be many false prophets. A great uh, number of them will arise amongst the Jews at this time and they're going to mislead many people, right? And when the false teachers arise, lawlessness will be increased because when False teaching is promoted. When the word that is being proclaimed is not a true word, but a false word, it is lies, then what is the result of the teaching of lies, the believing of lies? It is lawlessness. People will commit lawlessness. They'll commit more and more and greater sins. When the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, consistently with the teaching of the Bible, it leads to righteousness. It leads people to deny sin, to put off sin, and to put on righteousness. But whenever there is false teaching, it leads to lawlessness. Well, these false teachers and false prophets are going to arise. They're going to condemn Christ. They're going to condemn the Christians. And there will be an increase in lawlessness at this time. And most people's love will grow cold. Those people, those false professors, who at their profession, they were very zealous. They seemed to have a real love for God, a real love for the saints. But as the lawlessness is increased, their love will grow cold. 
This is as it says in Revelation chapter 2 when it's speaking of the Ephesian church, the church at Ephesus, that they had lost their first love. Their love had grown cold, and this is how it is with temporary false disciples. They have a momentary love, a momentary faith, but then when their faith is gone, their love grows cold as well. And the things that they profess and the things that they did momentarily, they have no endurance in these things. This actually goes along quite well with what we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. The need for endurance and perseverance to remain steadfast, to hold fast firm until the end. And the occasion of the writing of the book of Hebrews is Christians who have made a profession of faith and who are now facing persecution and are being tempted to abandon Christ and go back to a form of Judaism without Christ. And he's telling them, you have to hold fast. You have to endure. Well, it's the same here. right? There will be a great apostasy taking place here because of the severity of the persecution that is arising here in the church. Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter 2. Verses 1 to 3. 2 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." There, they bring destructive heresies, and because of them, people follow their sensuality. The false teaching, the destructive heresy, results in an increase in lawlessness, or here he calls it sensuality. This was what Jesus is talking about here in this passage as well. Also, 1 John chapter 5 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3 it says, For this is love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And then also while we're in 1 John chapter 3 verse 4, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So there, when it says that their love will grow cold, and there will be an increase in lawlessness, that's what it's talking about. Here, love of God is defined as practicing or keeping His commandments, that His commandments are not burdensome for the true believer. But then these false believers, there's an increase in lawlessness. And what is lawlessness? But the practicing of sin. Then also, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. How then will they be able to overcome these things? That's why he says in verse 13, The one who endures to the end... He will be saved. He's telling them about the difficulties that are coming up. These are going to be severe trials and tribulations that they are going to face. Some of them, some of those who are listening to him, will be thrown into prison. Some of them will be flogged. They will be beaten. Some of them will be executed for their faith in Christ. Of his disciples, all of them, except for John, will die a violent death because of their faith in Christ. Okay, with these severe trials and tribulations that are coming upon them, how will any of them make it through this? Well, he says you have to endure. You must endure until the end. You must be faithful to Christ and hold fast, firm until the end. And 1 John 5 verse 4 tells us how we do this. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The way that we are able to overcome these trials and tribulations is through faith in Christ. Faith in the Son of God, Jesus the Son of God, and committing our lives and our very souls into the care of a faithful creator who is able to judge justly and who is able to raise us up from the dead. This is how they will overcome 
these severe trials and even being put to death, right? They will be able to overcome by this. But here he's telling them, you must endure to the end. And it's only the one who endures who will be saved. Not that his endurance saves him, but rather his endurance is the manifestation. It is the proof that his faith is legitimate faith. No one can be saved without faith in Christ. Christ is the source of salvation, and it is faith that connects a man to Christ, that gives us uh, a union with Christ so that his life, his power, his strength, his grace comes to us, resulting in our salvation. But in order for one to be a true partaker of Christ, he must have true, legitimate, sincere faith, not false faith. And what is the difference, or one of the differences, between true faith and false faith? Well, false faith falls away during times of tribulation, whereas true faith endures until the end. It overcomes those things. Not that true faith may not have its weaknesses, not that it cannot be shaken here and there. That can happen. Such was the case with Peter whenever he denied Christ three times. But he did that one time. It wasn't what he practiced throughout the rest of his life. And then later in his life, he died for his faith. This also, I think, is what happened with John Mark when he abandoned uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas when they were on their journey. But later, he was restored, right? It wasn't something that he practiced over and over and over again. And he did not fall away fully and finally to where he, he walked away from Christ and was done with Christianity. No, he sinned. He, he had a, a momentary weakness, a momentary failing, but then he overcame it, right? And this is the way that we have to be. We have to endure until the very end, and we cannot forsake Christ and give up on the Christian life. Verse 14, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. Here, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world. Now, some people would say, look, then this would mean all these things have to be dealing with future events. Because even today, in a sense, the gospel has not been preached to the whole world, meaning every single person in the world has not heard the gospel. And even there are places in the world that still have not had an influence by the preaching of the gospel. But I don't think that's the way that Jesus is meaning this. He means it in the sense that the gospel will be preached in Jerusalem, then it will go to Judea, and then it will go to Samaria, and then it will go to the ends of the earth. And did that happen? Was that accomplished during the life of the disciples, during that generation? Yes, it went into those regions. Not that it went into every region in the ends of the earth, but it did go and begin to spread throughout that region that was called the whole world or the ends of the earth. And this is the way that the Apostle Paul uses this in Romans 16. Romans chapter 16, 25 to 27. Notice here in Acts 16, 25 to 27, the Apostle Paul states that the gospel has been made known to all nations. Acts, or Romans 16, sorry, I may have said Acts, but I meant Romans. Romans 16, 25 to 27 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. There, this preaching of Jesus Christ, which is the revelation of a mystery which has been kept secret for long ages. Not that it was a secret to all men on the earth for long ages, because certainly it was known by Abraham. It was known by Isaac. It was known by Jacob. It was known by Moses. It was known by David, right? But it was not known in China. It was not known in Japan. It was not known in North America. It was not known in England or in Europe or in many other parts of the world. The mystery was kept secret from the nations for many, many ages. It was known in Israel 
and it was known in some proximity to Israel, but the prophets were not sent to go into distant lands and proclaim the gospel to those people. They preached the gospel to who? Mostly to the Jews, and then occasionally to some of the surrounding nations, such as Jonah when he went and preached to the men of Nineveh. But now, after the coming of Christ, the gospel is going to be proclaimed not only in Israel, not only in Jerusalem, but then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. And here the Apostle Paul says that it has been made known to all nations. And this is during his lifetime, right? Because he's still alive when he's writing this. And when he's writing this, he is saying that it has been made known to all nations. Now, at this point, the gospel has not come to North America, and it won't come to North America for many, many years. And it had not even gone into parts of Europe or in parts of uh, Asia in various parts of the world, but it had gone into the nations, right? Meaning that it had spread out of this region of the Middle East and was now going and advancing to various nations. And at this point, it's even into Rome. And we know in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul's desire was to go from Rome to where? He wanted to go to Spain so that he could preach the gospel there in places where it had not yet been preached so that he didn't build on another man's foundation. And that's the way I take what Jesus is saying here, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come, meaning the end of Jerusalem. The end of Jerusalem will come, but this will take place first, which will take some time, some years, for the gospel to go. And this is a sign against the nation of Israel. That the blessings of God that had been given to them and were peculiar to them for so many years, from Moses, even really from Abraham, up until the time of Christ, that those things were going to be taken away from Israel and they were going to be given to other people. Right? Remember the parable of the vineyard? where there it says that the vine keepers, the ones, the stewards that were in charge of the vineyard, what will the owner of that vineyard do? He will take it away from them and give it to others who will produce fruit. And that was Jesus indicating that the gospel was going to be taken away from Israel and was going to be given to the Gentiles. And from Christ until the present day, salvation is mostly of the Gentiles, not of the Jews. Before it was of the Jews, but now it is mostly of the Gentiles, right? Of the Gentiles. And this is a sign against Israel and against Jerusalem that this would take place before their destruction as a testimony against them because of their great evil of crucifying the Son of God. Okay? All right. Now, verse 15. Verse 15. He says there... <clears throat> Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. In verses 4 to 8, he talked about the beginning of birth pangs. In verses 9 to 14, there is the intensifying of the birth pangs. And then in verses 15 to 28, the baby is arriving. Okay, That is, I think, the progression that is taking place in these verses. Now he's telling them, these are going to be the events that immediately proceed. When you see these things happening, this is your sign, your indication to flee, to run, to get as far away from Jerusalem as you possibly can so that you don't get swept up in the destruction that is coming upon this wicked nation. And here, the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let the reader of Daniel understand that what Daniel was predicting, I am announcing to you. So that when you're reading this prophecy, you understand what it is a reference to. It's not cryptic to you. It's not a mystery to you. It's not some, uh, something that is unknown to you. I'm telling you, I'm giving you the interpretation of Daniel the prophet. This is the abomination of desolation. And when you see it, then you need to understand and know that these things are about to come about that Daniel predicted and prophesied. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9, 
verse 24 to 27. Daniel 9, 24 says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Here, Daniel the prophet is predicting not only the restoration of Jerusalem, okay, because at this point Daniel is in captivity. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. And yet in a time, the people are going to be restored back to Jerusalem after the 70 years of completion for them to pay for their iniquities. Meaning there was this punishment of God determined because of the sins of Israel where they would be removed from their land. And then after that period of time, they would be brought back. Right? That's why he's talking about to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, right? He's talking about them filling up their sin and this punishment of God that came upon them because of this. But then he talks about the coming of Messiah, the Prince. From the time that Jerusalem is restored till the coming of Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and it will be built again. So he is talking about the days of Christ because who is Messiah, the Prince? other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then in verse 26, he talks about the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, which is in reference to his death, right? Christ will be cut off and have nothing. And then after that, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then this is the one who is called the abomination who makes desolate. Desolations are determined. The wing of abominations will come, one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. After the cutting off of Messiah the Prince, there will come this Prince, this abomination of desolation, who will then destroy Jerusalem. Right, and this is what Daniel the prophet is referring to. Now, Jesus is saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet in this passage, when you see him standing in the holy place, then you need to understand that he is coming to make what? Desolation, right? He is the abomination that makes desolate. And what is he going to make desolate? Jerusalem, right? He's going to completely destroy it. And so when you see him coming, then the reader needs to understand these things. Now, if we read this with Luke 21, Luke 21 uh, gives us the literal interpretation of this. Uh, in Matthew 24, he's using the prophetic uh, imagery, the abomination of desolation. What he will do, Luke 21, 20, tells us here, this is how they are to know. 2120, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then he goes in in Luke and is talking about the same things that he's talking about in Matthew 24. So the abomination that makes desolation is referring to the armies of Rome, 
under the leadership of Vespasian and Titus. Titus then Vespasian. They are the ones who will come and will completely destroy Jerusalem. And he's telling them, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, do not think God is going to preserve the city. Do not think that there is a way to escape the judgment of God. Do not think that some miracle is going to occur and that the city is going to be preserved. Know for certain that this is the abomination of desolation. It is the armies of Rome under these wicked men. And when they come and they're surrounding the city, they are going to make it desolate. They are going to utterly destroy it. And this is indeed what happens. They are an abomination because they are pagans, they are heathens, they are uncircumcised, they are idolaters. So they are abominable people in that they are pagans and idolaters who do not worship and serve the living God. And then they are a desolation, abomination of desolation because they make everything desolate. When they come to the city, they're going to completely destroy it and burn it to the ground and tear all the buildings down and make a complete end. And this is indeed what happened in AD 70. Jerusalem was destroyed in such a way that the nation of Israel was no more. It was no more until 1950 something, okay? So it was completely done away with at that point. They made a end to it. Then he says, when you see this, let the reader understand. Understand this is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. This is the same as in Revelation. Revelation 13, 18 and Revelation 17, 9. There, when he is giving these prophecies or when he's giving his teaching, he tells the people that there is a call for wisdom. You need to understand what I'm saying here. Revelation 13, 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of man, and the number is 666. Then also chapter 17 and verse 9. 17 verse 9. It says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Again, here is the mind that has wisdom. Right? These things are given so that we might have wisdom and understanding into the will of God. And knowing the will of God, we might respond accordingly so that we might practice wisdom according to the will of God. This is what he is telling them. Now, what is the application of this wisdom, of this understanding that they are to take from this? Well, verse 16, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So here, the application is to run, run, flee, get out as quickly as you can. So is there a godly fleeing? Is it righteous to flee from persecution, to flee right from death when it's not necessary to die? Well, according to Jesus, it is, right? He says, when you see these things, leave Judea, right? Flee out of this entire region, not just Jerusalem, but get out of Judea. Get completely out of this area and do not stick around. Right? Why would you suffer and die needlessly when I'm telling you in advance what's going to happen to prepare you so that you can leave and avoid the destruction? If we knew a meteorite was headed for Vision Bank and Meeker and they told us beforehand, then wouldn't we be wise to leave, to get out of here before it hits? Don't we do this every spring in Oklahoma? Right? When the uh, weather goes bad and the tornadoes are coming, they tell us to flee, right? Run, get out of here. Actually, they say to get in your cellar. But if you don't have one, you've got to run. Right? You have to go somewhere so that you aren't swept up in the destruction. And that's what Jesus is telling them. He's preparing his own people for what is coming so that this judgment that's coming upon the wicked there in Jerusalem and in Judea will not come upon his own people. Because God has not destined us for wrath, but He's destined us for salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 5. It says, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, 
like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. There, again, he's telling these believers that this day is not going to surprise you. It's going to surprise the world. It's going to surprise the ungodly because they're not prepared for it. But it's not going to surprise you because you know full well that these things are going to take place. They're saying peace and safety, but then sudden destruction will come upon them. Well, the same is going to happen here in relationship to the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment of God there on Jerusalem. People are going to have false hope. They're going to be hearing these false teachers say, peace and safety. We are God's people. We are children of Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. He will never destroy us. It is going to go well with us. God will deliver us. He's done it in the past. They'll appeal to Hezekiah and what God did. He sent an angel and he killed all of those Assyrians. They will be telling the people everything is going to be all right. Just stay here, hunker down, and God will deliver us. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not going to happen. It's going to be an utter destruction. So when these things begin to take place, then you need to flee Judea and do not stay there. How serious is it? Verse 17, whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Here, it is so perilous. And when this happens, it will take place so swiftly that if you are on the housetop and you see these things, you don't even have time to go down into your house and gather a few of your items, a few valuable, a few keepsakes and things that you want to take with you. No. He says, don't even go down from your rooftop. Just jump off and take off running. And if you're out in the field and you see these things coming, don't say, oh, I'm going to run back home so I can get my cloak and change my clothes and then I'll leave. He says, no, don't go back. Just leave, right? Leave as quickly as possible. It's the same as with Sodom and Gomorrah, with Lot and his family. There was no time for them to gather their belongings, no time for them to plan out and to take their time and have some detailed uh, leaving of the city, a moving out. Rather, they just had to flee and everything was going to be destroyed and lost in it. But they would preserve their life. And yes, it is sad to lose all your belongings, but you can always rebuild, right? You can always start over. But if you're dead, you can't start over, right? That's, I know, obvious, right? Take that home with you tonight, okay? Really think about that. Genesis 19, verses 15 to 17. Genesis 19, 15 says, When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And when they brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. That's the same as what Jesus is doing here. Because he has compassion on his people, just as God had compassion on Lot, he delivered him. But he had to take it very seriously. It was perilous. He's saying, you better run. Escape for your life and don't stay in the valley or you will be swept away. So also Jesus is telling them, flee from Judea. And if you don't, then you're going to be swept away. And it'll be your own fault because I prepared you. I told you in advance what was going to happen. Verses 19 and 20. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Here, typically, pregnancy and babies are great blessings. And indeed, the Bible teaches that they are blessings from the Lord. But here, in this situation, they will become great sources of sorrow and burden. Because it's hard to flee and run when you are pregnant. And it's difficult to flee and run when you have a nursing baby that you have to care for, that has to be fed. Right? It makes it to where you're not able to escape as quickly. And then you may be caught up in the destruction. So these things that are typically sources of blessing 
will be even more difficult for them to get out of Judea and to flee in the way that they need to. And then he says, pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Pray that this doesn't happen in the wintertime, because in the winter, the conditions are more perilous. It's more difficult. You're exposed to the cold during the nights. It's not as easy. You're running for your life. You're up in the mountains. You're having to sleep outside, right, in order to just save your life. Well, you're not able to go back and get your cloak. You just had to run as quickly as you could. You have no provisions with you, and it's more difficult during the wintertime. And in God's grace, this did not happen in the wintertime. It happened during the summer. It happened during the summer. And also, he says, pray that it's not on a Sabbath. Not on a Sabbath. Not that it's a sin to flee on the Sabbath. Of course, it's not a sin if someone's trying to kill you and you need to run away on the Sabbath. However, because of the false zeal of the Jews, it would make it more difficult for them. Their mind would not be as convinced. They would be fluctuating between two opinions, right? Going back and forth, thinking, oh, am I sinning against God by doing this? Do I just need to bear up and practice righteousness and do what's right and trust myself to God, right? If it's on a Sabbath day that you need to, then people will hesitate. They'll have doubts. They won't be as quick to do it because of this false zeal and these expectations that are wrongly put upon them by these legalistic Jews, right? And it's in Jerusalem. And that's what everyone's going to say. You'll be afraid. What are my neighbors going to think about me if I am running and trying to flee the city? They're going to look down upon me. And don't many people think in that way? Right? They hesitate. They don't do what they ought to do because they're afraid of what others might think about them. And here, this is what will happen. So he says, pray that it's not on a Sabbath, right? Because of the false piety of the Jews. Then verse 21. For there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Here, the tribulation, the suffering, the extent of the destruction and the horrors that Jerusalem faces and the Jews face from the Romans in A.D. 70 is of such an extent, they were so horrible and numerous, that no city had suffered from the beginning of the world or ever will like they did. And that is just in the sight of God because no city has ever sinned the way that they sinned. What other city can say, lay claim to the fact that they are the ones who crucified the Son of God? Only Jerusalem did. Therefore, their sufferings and the physical torments and punishments that came upon them exceeded that of any other nation. It exceeded Nineveh. It exceeded Babylon. It exceeded all of the other times, even what happened in 586 when Jerusalem was destroyed. It exceeded even that. It was such a tribulation that has never been seen and never will again. And Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, actually, Mike, you just brought him up recently. He was a Jewish historian who was an eyewitness and had eyewitness accounts of what took place in Jerusalem during that time. He says... Never did any city suffer such things, nor were there ever any generation that more uh, abounded in malice and wickedness. That being the Romans. No city has ever suffered like this, and there were no people who were ever more wicked and malicious than the Romans in the things that they did against them. Verse 22. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If those days, the days of their destruction, had not been cut short, if God had allowed it to go on for many, many more days, they would have killed everyone. Not a single person, he says, would have survived had God not cut those days short. But for the sake of the elect, those days were cut short. Because of God's love for the elect and His desire to save His chosen ones, the elect ones, He cut those days short so that their lives were preserved so that God might call them to salvation. And this is because of the kindness of God. His kindness toward the elect also extended to others as well. Because other people's lives were at least preserved temporarily, physically, who would have maybe died had those days not been cut short. But because of God's love for the elect, 
he cut those days short. This would be 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There, the Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, right? And who is the you? Who is He addressing here? The saints, the believers, right? Not wishing for any, any of you saints to perish, but for all to come to repentance. None of the elect will perish. He will bring all of them to repentance. And because of the elect, he cut the days short. Because had he allowed it to go on, they would have died. They would have perished in this destruction. But for their sake, he cut it short so that he might be gracious to them and grant them repentance that leads to life. And this is the same as the prophet Habakkuk. When he is prophesying concerning the destruction of his own people in his day, he prays to God. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. That is what the prophet there prayed, that God, even when he's pouring out his judgments and his wrath justly upon the people, that he would still be merciful toward the elect. And this is what we should pray as well, because God continues to bring his judgments upon the world. He continues to pour out His wrath upon the nations. Yet we should also pray that God in His wrath would be merciful to His people and merciful to the elect, granting them repentance that would lead to life. 23. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For a false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Here, when this is happening, when this tribulation is taking place, people are desperate. They're desperate for answers. They want hope. They want comfort. They want someone to give them solace during this time of sorrow and grief. So people will be more vulnerable and more willing to listen to liars, to listen to false prophets and false Christs. And they will rise up during this time knowing that people are desperate and desperate people will believe desperate things. So they will rise up and they will say, the Christ is here or he's over there, right? And I've got a word from him. And this is what he said. And I'm the Christ. And God has told me that he's going to deliver us from the Romans and that none of us are going to die, but it's all going to be okay. Just follow me and, and stay with me and listen to me and believe me. Everything will work all right. They're going to arise, and they're going to show great signs and wonders to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Right? This is how devious they will be, how manipulative they will be, that they will be able to lead people away. Even if it was possible to lead the elect away, they would do so. But is it possible? No, because God won't let it happen. Not because of the elect in their own strength and wisdom, but because of the Spirit. God his Spirit preserves them. He seals them and protects them from false teachers, from false Christ and false prophets. But those who are not the elect, well, they're going to buy it hook, line, and sinker. He's, and, and in this way, isn't Jesus preparing His own so that they don't come under that delusion? He's teaching them and preparing them so that when these false Christ and false prophets arise, they won't listen to them. And again, their message is going to be a message of deliverance that God is with us. We are His people. He will not let our feet fall to the ground. He will not let us stumble. He will preserve us. We are children of Abraham. And God made promises to us. And therefore, it is impossible for us to falter. And they will use the Bible. They will quote from the Old Testament. But they'll take it out of context. And they will give false confidence to the people so that instead of running... Or instead of going out and surrendering to the Romans and take your beating and, and whatever exploitation they do, they do to you, at least you might survive with your life. They're going to hunker down in Jerusalem and think that God's going to send a miracle. Because 
this, this man over here, he says that he's the Christ. This other man, he says he's a prophet, and this is what he's prophesying concerning these things. Don't believe him, he's saying. Don't listen to him. Don't put your confidence in this kind of vain hope. Jeremiah 32. This happened during Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 32, verses 1 to 5. Jeremiah was telling the people, listen, God has decreed it. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So what did they need to do? Surrender. Go out and give yourself over to the Babylonians. Surrender to them and your life will be preserved. And you'll even be allowed to stay here and it will be all right. At least you'll live. Don't resist them because if you resist, then you're going to die. That's what Jeremiah was telling them because God had decreed it. It was sure, it was certain that this was going to happen. But the people wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. Who did they want to listen to? The false prophets. Jeremiah 32 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at that time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah. Because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he will take Zedekiah to Babylon, and he will be there until I visit him, declares the Lord, if you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. That's what Jeremiah is preaching. But Zedekiah is saying, why are you prophesying like this? Why won't you speak words of comfort to us, soothing words, right? Words of deliverance, words of hope. That's what he wants. But God had already determined that they were going to be destroyed. And Jeremiah is giving them words of hope. He's saying to them, don't fight against them. If you do, you won't succeed. But if you surrender and give up, then you'll live, right? You will have your life preserved. Also, chapter 38, Jeremiah 38. Jeremiah 38, verse 14. It says, Then King Zedekiah sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance that is in the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I'm going to ask you something. Do not hide anything from me. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not certainly put me to death? Besides, if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore to Jeremiah in secret, saying, As the Lord lives, who made this life for us, surely I will not put you to death, nor will I give you over to the hand of these men who are seeking your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will indeed go to the officers of the king of Babylon, then you will live. This city will not be burned with fire. You and your household will survive. But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hand of the Chaldeans, and they will burn it with fire, and you yourself will not escape from their hand. Then king Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I dread the Jews who have gone over to the Chaldeans, for they may give me over into their hands, and they will abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I am saying to you, that it may go well with you and you may live. But if you keep refusing to go out, this is the word which the Lord has shown me. Then behold, all of the women who have been left in the palace of the king of Judah are going to be brought out to the officers of the king of Babylon. And those women will say, Your close friends have misled and overpowered you. While your feet were sunk in the mire, they turned back. They will also bring out all of your wives and your sons to the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from their hand, but will be seized by the hand of the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no man know about these words, and you will not die. But if the officials hear that I talk with you, and come to you, and say to you, Tell us now what you said to the king, and what the king said to you. Do not hide it from us, and we will not put you to death. Then you are to say to them, I was presenting my petition before the king, not to make me return to the house of Jonathan to die there. 
Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and questioned him. So he reported to them in accordance with all the words which the king had spoken, or which the king had commanded, and they ceased speaking with him, since the conversation had not been overheard. So Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse until the day that Jerusalem was captured. So there, Jeremiah is again telling him, if you will go over and surrender, then you're going to live, and the city won't be burned with fire. Because God had decreed it, that it was going to happen. There are times when God relents of the disaster that he has predicted or prophesied, such as the city of Nineveh. On their repentance, God did not destroy the city. But here, there's no escaping it. It has been decreed. There's no escaping, so you just need to surrender to them. And this is the same as Matthew 24. It has been decreed by God that the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed, and these false Christs are going to rise up and give false comfort and hope to the people, just as they did during the days of Jeremiah. So that Zedekiah didn't listen to Jeremiah, but rather he listened to the false teachers. Verse 25, Matthew 24, 25, he says, Behold, I have told you in advance. Right? I've told you these things before they happen, so that when they happen, you'll know exactly what's happening. Right? That's why I'm telling you, to prepare you. I'm not giving you this just so you have some knowledge in your head. I'm giving it to you so that you might be prepared and know what to do when all of these things happen to Jerusalem. And he's telling who in advance? You, his own disciples. Because the Lord watches over the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God watches over his people. Christ cares for his own sheep, and therefore he is preparing them. Because in this case, it is not necessary for them to be swept away in the judgment. They can be preserved and kept from that by fleeing from the city of Jerusalem. Verse 26. So what they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness. Do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Here, when they say to you, He is in the wilderness, that is Christ. Christ has returned. He returned secretly. It was a secret second coming of Christ. And he's out in the wilderness, and he's going to come and deliver us. Or they're saying, Christ has come, and he's in the inner room. You know, he liked to go to those inner rooms. Right? He's in the inner room, and there he is. And I've seen him, and he's going to deliver us. Right? He's going to save us from the Romans. He's saying, don't listen to them. Right? They're lying to you. They're not telling you the truth. Right? I'm not in the wilderness. I'm not in the inner room. Where is Christ going to be when all of this takes place? He's in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. But how will we know when Christ returns? How obvious will it be? How evident will it be? Will it be a secret that no one knows about except a secret group, a select few who have this hidden knowledge, who have this hidden understanding, and they know that he's in the wilderness? Right? My cousin came up and he told me he's out in the wilderness. Right? Or we know he's in the inner room. I saw him. No one else saw him come, but I have seen him and I've witnessed it. How obvious will the second coming of Christ be? That's verse 27. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. If you're outside and you, your eyes work, okay, and it's dark outside and there's a lightning storm, and the lightning goes from the east and goes across the sky to the west, is it something that is, you can miss, that's avoidable, that ah, I, didn't, I didn't know, is that lightning or not? Of course you know when it happens. It's obvious, it's plain, it's clear to everyone. This is how the second coming of Christ will be. It will be so obvious, so plain, that it is unmistakable and it is impossible that Christ returned and He's out in the wilderness. Or that Christ returned and He's in the inner room and you missed it, right? You didn't know that this thing happened. Because when He comes, He will come on the clouds in glory, in flaming fire, with His holy angels, with the trumpet sound, and the dead in Christ will rise. This is going to be a worldwide cataclysmic event that everyone will know. Yep. And if you think you missed it, then it, it ain't happened. 
Okay, that's what Jesus is saying to them. It will be this obvious as lightning coming from east to west. It will be clear, plain, obvious, unmistakable. Then, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Here, I take this twofold. One, Israel is a corpse, spiritually, and the Romans are vultures in a spiritual sense, in the sense that they are coming to devour the corpse of Israel. So Israel is indeed, spiritually speaking, a corpse, and the Romans are going to come as vultures and gather around that carcass, and they are going to devour it. So in that way, it is true. But also, when this happens, what is literally going to happen? There will be corpses everywhere, and when that happens, vultures will come, and they will pick the flesh of the dead bodies. So it has both a, a double meaning, both spiritual and then also a, a spiritual and a uh, figurative and then an actual literal one as well. And this is when you will know that Jerusalem's destruction is here. When you see the Romans coming and then the result will be the vultures will come and descend. These unclean birds will descend upon this unclean city and will devour the flesh of these people, the masses of them that die in the destruction of Jerusalem. And many, many people will die. So, then, in verse 29, I take it that he's then now shifting to talking about the second coming of Christ. He's introduced it here, right? Not that he's saying the second coming is going to happen then. He's just saying when the second coming happens, it will be like lightning flashing from east to west. So, don't believe these people during this time who are saying Christ has come back. Then, in verse 29 through the rest of the chapter, I take it then to be addressing the second coming, which is still future to us, where we're still waiting for the second coming of Christ. And then we'll pick up there next week, okay, in verse 29.